Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today, we're looking at two countries that we haven't discussed for a while, Italy and Germany. They're both said at the moment to be having quite good COVID crises. Are they? And what does that mean for Europe? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas, where you can read elegant and expansive essays on every subject imaginable, from Amir Srinivasan on pronouns to James Meek on the WHO, from Pankaj Mishra on Anglo-America to Catherine Rundell on the Greenland Shark. Get 12 issues in print and online, that's half a year of the LRB, for just £12, with the URL lrb.me slash talk. That's lrb.me slash talk. Joining Helen and me today, we have Lucia Rubinelli, who is, uh, I hope you don't mind me saying this, our regular Italian correspondent, and Hans Kudnani from Chatham House, where he's a senior fellow and he's written very widely about both German and European politics. Lucia, just tell us where you are. I am at the Garda Lake, close to Verona. It's nice, right? Yeah, it's it's quite nice. (laughs) Even though today it's quite cloudy and there's a thunderstorm coming and I can see it from my window. Okay, just tell us when it hits. Uh, Hans, are you in London? I am. I'm in West London, which is also very nice, but it's not quite Lake Garda. No, and Helen is in London. I'm in Cambridge. I think let's start with Italy. So Lucia, we've had a few conversations and there's been a kind of arc to them. So I vividly remember our first one when you were locked down. This was in March and you seemed to be in this terrifying situation. You were locked down in a flat and we weren't. And it was like this glimpse of the future, and it was properly scary. And Italy seemed to be the the sort of harbinger of doom, a glimpse of the thing that was coming for all of us. Then we spoke when the situation is more similar between the UK and Italy. Now we're in the supposedly out phase, although we'll see what's coming next. And there seems to have been in the coverage from outside Italy, a big shift in perspective on how people view Italy's experience of the pandemic. It was terrible. Then we were sort of all in it together. And now Italy seems to be doing pretty well. So this might be an illusion and it might just be how we cover these things. A lot of it's pretty parochial. So in the UK, there's this sort of sense of who's on the quarantine list and who isn't. Spain is doing worse. France is doing worse. But also there was an article in the New York Times saying that Italy had started to become a kind of model for the world of how you can get out of this. Is it? Does it feel like that inside Italy, that Italy is now a model for the world? Well, I have to say that that article from the New York Times certainly contributed to boosting our national pride. There was a big debate when that article came out. Um, And I think in a way it came out at a good time because it really looked like the summer was sorted and the cases were not too many and the situation seemed to be under control. But since the article came out, cases have started rising again and at quite an exponential rate. So just two days ago, the government decreed a new series of restrictions, including they closed down all nightclubs. And now we have to wear masks everywhere. There are more than a few people gathered. So the situation has improved substantially from our first conversation, obviously. And I have to say that for most of the summer, so June and July, 
life seemed to be back to normal in Italy. So you go to a cafe and have your nice cappuccino outside and people would be chatting to each other and everything seemed normal. Now I think the trend is starting to change again. And I'll bring in Hanson Helen in a second. We, in our conversations, you and I focused on the politics. In our initial conversation, we also just focused on the experience of lockdown. But there was a feeling both times that we spoke that this was really revealing these deep cracks in the structure of the Italian state, the center versus the regions, the different parties, the authority of the state. During the period over the summer where things seemed to be healing, was there a political healing? Did any of those cracks start to close up or does it still feel pretty raw? I'm not sure it's healing, but things have changed and in a way, at least for now, have stabilized. Now, there is a big caveat to this, which is that the government, the central government, decided to have regional and local elections as well as a referendum, a constitutional referendum, at the end of September. So, of course, the entire political debate throughout the summer has been geared towards this electoral appointment. So it might very well be the calm before the storm. But yes, during the summer, things seem to have calmed down, at least at the party political level. So the government that looked very shaky in May, when phase two started, especially when the health crisis seemed to have slowed down and the economic and social crisis was starting to show its signs, at that point, the government seems to be very shaky. And now it seems to be on a firmer, much firmer ground. And this has to do with the recovery fund, as we will discuss later. It also has to do with the fact the two main parties in the government coalition, so the Democratic Party and the Five Star Movement, have decided just this last week to run together to these regional elections. So, of course, this is a big, big change for Italian politics, especially because the Five Star Movement one of the cornerstones of the Five Star Movement was that it would never run together with another party at elections. And now they had an online consultation with their base and they decided to change this rule. And hence, the government coalition is going to run as a coalition also at these regional elections, which has given stability to the government, at least in these past few weeks. Again, let's see what happens in September, though. Okay, and one last very quick question from me. Both times we spoke, there was this sense that all of this shouldn't distract from the inexorable march of Salvini back to power. Has that march slowed or even stopped? I don't think it, no, stopped is is a bit too optimistic, but it has definitely slowed, I think. And this is for possibly two reasons. So the first reason is that the rally around the flag effect is still working in Italy, very clearly. Salvini has been in opposition throughout the entire crisis and he made a series of faux pas during the crisis. So at first he said we didn't need face masks. Then he said we needed them. A few weeks ago, he went to a convention of people who denied the existence of COVID. So Salvini is really, he doesn't have a clear line. And on top of that, as you mentioned, and as we discussed in previous episodes, the crisis immediately assumed a regional dimension, which brought back the regional dimension that is intrinsic to the Northern League itself. So the party was born as a regional party. So it was the party of Northern industrial regions against the center and the south. And of course, that came back with a lot of power and strength during the crisis and is still now very powerful. So I think Salvini is struggling for this reason. And then the other reason is that the 
government of Lombardy, so the region of Milan, which was the worst hit region during the COVID crisis, is run by the Northern League. So the president of the region, this guy Attilio Fontana, is one of the most important figures in the league and he's very close to Salvini. And he has very recently been involved in a corruption scandal that has to do with PPE, basically the process of buying PPE for that region that was already struggling very badly. And in the worst moment of the struggle, the president of the region seems to have made money out of furniture of PPE. So this, I think, has structurally weakened the league, which was already weakened by corruption scandals before Salvini took power. And then somehow Salvini managed to distract the attention from that with his anti-migration rhetoric and policies. But now the, all of these corruption scandals are coming back. Helen Hans, do you want to come in? Yeah, I think that what's interesting in Italy is that what has happened politically during the crisis is that it's really reinforced the dynamics that took shape last summer and last autumn. So if you go back to the spring of 2019, when you still had the coalition between Five Star and the League, and the ECB wasn't running a QE programme, then Italy was in a quite precarious position because of the fact that it had basically lost its de facto support for its debt from the ECB, and it had a government in power that was, shall we say, not looked at with any affection, to put it mildly, either by other northern member state EU governments or by the ECB itself. And then what happened last summer was that that coalition was broken and that Five Star moved into coalition with the the Democrats, as Lucia has said, and then later in the year, the ECB resumed quantitative easing again. So Italy had a support structure for its debt, which is in a complicated way, and we'll come to this obviously, being reinforced by the EU recovery fund. So what we've really seen is that Five Star has moved into being an establishment, much more establishment-like party that started last summer. And clearly it has been massively reinforced now during the crisis itself, both because the league's been in a much more difficult position. And as Lucia said, Salvini has fallen in popularity, though he's also fallen in popularity because support has gone further to his right. But at the same time, Five Star is now pretty clearly a pro-Euro, not questioning the framework in which the Eurozone works kind of party. Well, it is at least for the time being. I think that the underlying issue, though, about Italian politics doesn't go away because the dissent that is generated by the fiscal demands and not only fiscal demands that are put on Italy has to go somewhere. And the fact that the EU recovery fund is going to give a sort of temporary veto for individual member states, other member states over what reforms Italy should be, the Italian government should be pursuing, is going to come back into play at a certain point. But I think that that sort of stabilising the situation domestically by excluding those who are most radical about the euro and getting ECB and now wider EU external support back again for Italy's debt is something that really is an important development. Hans, we're going to come on to Germany in a second, but just on this Italian question, is there any sense seen from Germany or other, as Helen said, northern European states that Italy is, at least for now, significantly less of a problem? I mean, Italy was always, over the past few years, been treated as this kind of really weak link in the European chain, and everybody should be very worried about what might happen in Italy. Has some of that worry in your sense of this gone away? I mean, I think so. But I think a lot of the debate, at least among pro-Europeans in Germany, 
is based on a little bit of a misunderstanding, which is that, you know, because there's this sense in Germany that Merkel has now moved quite radically on the question of debt mutualization in the Eurozone. Based on that, there's a belief, I think, that Germany has now gone a long way to help Italy solve its problems. The problem with that is that, as I say, it's based on a slight sort of misunderstanding about what the recovery fund does, because it doesn't really deal with the pre sort of 2020 macroeconomic imbalances in the Eurozone. It really only deals with the way that the coronavirus, you know, exacerbated those or threatened to exacerbate those imbalances. And so it may or may not, you know, there's a debate about the extent to which the recovery fund is macroeconomically significant and the impact that it will have, and also about whether it will be a precedent for further risk sharing in the Eurozone and so on. But, you know, one thing I think that it's clear that it doesn't really do is deal with the imbalances that predate the coronavirus. It seems to me that that's, you know, the the fundamental problem in relation to Italy, and that remains regardless of the recovery fund. And Lucia, has the appetite for confrontation with the EU significantly dampened down? Because again, we talked about this before, that at some point, it seemed likely that there would be a real confrontation. And for now, that seems to have receded quite significantly. Yes, and I think this is due to two things. So the first is that the Prime Minister, Giuseppe Conte, I think because he knows Salvini, I actually think he was very skilled from a rhetorical point of view, in creating a type of discourse that was very negative of the Eurozone and the European Union in March and April. So when the negotiations for the recovery fund were still starting and when he was pushing for corona bonds, at this point he had very strong words against the European Union and even the President of the Republic sent a note that was public basically criticizing Merkel. So there was a moment when the mainstream forces, so the prime minister and even the president of the republic, went really hard on the European Union. But then as soon as the recovery fund was negotiated, suddenly this is the best thing that the European Union ever did for us. And the general sense in the country was that they fought hard and they defended national interests and national pride. And hence, we should be really proud of this achievement. And that, in a way completely left Salvini bewildered. And if you check his Twitter profile, you can see that in the immediate aftermath of the five days Brussels meeting, deciding on the recovery fund, he really didn't know what to say. So he was trying different lines of criticism and trying to see what brought some reaction from his supporters, but it was not clear. So in a way, the prime minister, he played both roles, right? So he criticized the European Union first, and then because he was so critical of it, his success could be seen as a real success. And then the other thing that is interesting is that the part of the debate that is concerned with the conditionalities and the problems that come with accepting money from the European Union is entirely focused on whether or not Italy should apply to the European Stability Mechanism. So it only focuses on this specific part of the European aid package which of course comes with the idea of what happened to Greece and the Troika and the 2011 memories. But none of the concerns that people seem to have against the European stability mechanism seem to translate to the recovery fund. And that's quite surprising. But it's also a way for the five-star movement to keep on criticizing Europe in a small regard and then accepting everything else. Helen, are you surprised that the anxieties that people have about the ESM don't translate to the recovery fund? 
Well, I think it's quite striking. It looks like the five stars moving on the ESM issue as well from what I was reading this morning. I think that unhappiness with conditionality, if we just put it in its most sort of schematic sense, is going to reassert itself in Italian politics. It always does. And if you look at even like Renzi's government, there's an awful lot of criticism that's directed, including from Renzi himself, in the direction of the commission for what Renzi presented as completely unacceptable interference in Italian economic decision making. That is a a structural feature of the relationship between Italy and the Eurozone because of Italy's debt position and Eurozone fiscal rules. Now, those rules are temporarily um, suspended at the moment, but the issue does reappear in the EU recovery fund because it's one of the effective conditions that the Dutch in particular were able to attach that certain reforms will be necessary in the end in order for this money, the grants to be accessed. And you could argue, and I think perhaps I would, that actually the ability of an individual member state to have a say in another Eurozone member state's economic policy is actually greater than it's ever been before or will be greater than it's ever been before under the terms of the EU recovery fund. So what we've seen in the past is the parties in government need to have certain level of confrontation with the Eurozone authorities and with the European Commission, but they need to direct that criticism in ways that doesn't in any way throw into question the willingness of the ECB to support Italy's debt. And Hans Helen there mentioned the Dutch and the coverage of the arguments leading up to the recovery fund did focus on the creation of what looked like this new alliance of hawkish smaller states, including, uh, well, possibly under the leadership of the Netherlands. Where does Germany stand in relation to that? I mean, it still was in many ways, everything hung on what Merkel would do, and Merkel and Macron are still the key players in all this. Is there any real sense in which an alliance of these smaller, more hawkish Northern European states have real influence? It's a really good question. And my instincts on this are quite cynical. When you look at the history of this, you know how in the first sort of five years of the euro crisis after 2010, Germany was very much itself in the role that the frugal four led by the Netherlands are now in. It seems to me that Germany was very uncomfortable in that position. And in particular, in 2015, when there was, you know, in the summer of 2015, the issue of Greek debt became acute again. It was very noticeable that Germany encouraged other countries in the Eurozone, you know, Slovakia, but also the Northern European countries like Finland and the Netherlands to kind of be more vocal. I think there was very much a conscious attempt by Germany to push those member states forward so that it wasn't exposed in the way that it had been in the first few years of the Euro crisis. And I'm a little cynical because it seems to me that this is actually part of a German strategy to position itself in the middle. Germany is quite comfortable when it's in this position in the middle with some member states on one side of the argument and some member states on the other side, you know, somewhat like the position that Germany was in on the Ukraine crisis or on the Russia issue in general. In the Eurozone crisis, Germany wasn't in that position in the middle, leading from the middle, as they sometimes like to call it in Germany. It was kind of on one end. And I think that there has been a conscious attempt in Berlin to sort of engineer a kind of a shift so that they seem to be moderate and in the middle of this. It seems to me there is a way in which Berlin has for the last few years been trying to sort of encourage those member states to 
be more vocal and visible so that Germany can play this kind of mediating role that it feels very comfortable with and that there's a long history of in German foreign policy. Having said that, you know, it's clearly also true that these countries like the Netherlands have their own positions. And some people have made the argument that with Brexit, actually, they've also somewhat sort of slipped into the the role that Britain used to play. So part of the reason they're being so vocal is also because they no longer have Britain to play that role. And I think on these Eurozone questions, though, I think it's, as I say, more sort of stepping into the German role rather than the British role, because Britain wasn't involved in, in those debates anyway, even before Brexit. So it's, it's complicated, but my sense is that this is at least to some extent part of a German strategy. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot does depend on individuals and personalities in German politics. We have a tendency to focus on Angela Merkel. She's a remarkable politician, and for a so-called lame duck politician, she still seems to have an awful lot of authority. But hawkish Germany was when Schaubler was running the show on, on the economic side. That's no longer the case. Just tell us a bit about domestic politics in Germany and also what's going on with the SPD. So we, you know, we do have elections eventually coming up. The SPD have nominated their candidate for chancellor. Just tell us a bit about the shift in personnel that's not all about Merkel. <laughs> I agree that there is way too much focus on Merkel in the discussions around German politics. And there's this sort of expectation that, you know, everything falls apart after Merkel leaves office, which I don't really buy. I think largely the way to understand Merkel is as the expression of a consensus in German politics that is very broad and has existed for the last sort of 15 years. And she's kind of been the embodiment of that consensus. But in general, it seems to be that Merkel doesn't really lead in that sense. She sort of follows the, she goes with the flow of German public opinion. And my reading of the shift that there's been in Germany that led to the recovery fund to a large extent, at least as far as the chancellery goes, was an example of that, that she shifted because she saw public opinion shifting. In terms of what's going on more broadly in German politics, it's interesting that you brought up Schäuble because, I mean, it's true that Schäuble was hawkish, you know, on these questions around fiscal policy and so on. But he was also considered to be more of a committed pro-European than Merkel was. He was both of these things at the same time. He's a federalist in, in the way that Merkel has never really been. He's now been replaced as finance minister by Olaf Scholz, social democrat, who is now, as you hinted, the social democrat candidate for chancellor in the election that will take place next autumn. It's not clear who the Christian Democrat candidate will be that will stand against him. Merkel won't be standing in that election, but it's not clear who her successor will be. So in a sense, it's quite open-ended. But having said that, I think to a large extent, this is still a discussion, as almost all discussions about German politics have been, or about elections in Germany in the last you know, 10 years or so. It's a discussion around 
who will be the junior partner in a coalition with the Christian Democrats to a large extent. There is a small chance that you will get a red, red, green coalition. In other words, that Olaf Scholz will lead a coalition together with the Greens and Die Linke, the far left party. There's also a very small chance that earlier in the year, it looked like it was a reasonable chance, but I was always a little sceptical and it now looks as if this is very unlikely, but there is a small chance that there will be a green chancellor, Robert Harbeck, probably in a green-black coalition. In other words, a coalition in which the Greens are the senior coalition partner and the Christian Democrats would be the junior coalition partner. But those two possibilities are fairly remote. And so largely what we are talking about here is who the successor will be to Merkel and then who the junior partner will be in the coalition that that successor to Merkel leads. And so I suppose my overall kind of prediction in terms of what happens, for example, to the EU and the Eurozone after Merkel is not really that much changes. I think that a lot of people are expecting some sort of big change one way or the other, you know, positively or negatively, but I wouldn't expect there to be a huge change, regardless of who succeeds Merkel. Yeah, I think that what's interesting in Germany is that there's a certain parallel with a significant caveat as to what's gone on in Italy during the pandemic crisis, and that is a doubling down, if you like, on grand coalition politics from what looked like it was becoming a quite weak position at the beginning of this year in Germany's case. So if you go towards the end of last year, I think it was the Social Democrats elected these joint party leaders who were some way to the left. And now the party is seems with these two's consent, um, instead nominated somebody who's much more of a, a centrist, a traditional social democrat to be the party's candidate for chancellor. If you look at what was going on in the, the Christian Democrats, you had the meltdown that occurred in the after the Thuringia state election that led to the end of AKK's party leadership and the search for another successor to Merkel. And essentially that revolved around the difficulty of actually assembling grand coalition politics at the regional level. But Merkel, as we know, has had a good crisis. And that issue seems to have, at least for the time being, been put to rest. So the European issue, the EU recovery fund issue has given away or has allowed for a regeneration, a temporary, I would say, regeneration of grand coalition politics in Germany and makes it more likely, perhaps, that this will continue after the next election. The difference with Italy is that in Italy's case, this grand coalition politics has had to involve co-opting in a previously anti-establishment party into the effective sort of grand coalition. And that isn't what's been going on in Germany. In Germany, it's always been about keeping out these anti-establishment parties. Lucia? I think what's interesting about what you just said, Helen, is that it's not just that the anti-establishment party has been co-opted in the grand coalition but it is the senior partner in the coalition, right? So the Five Star is the party that created the government, that led the negotiations, and that survived the decision by Salvini to call for a non-confidence vote and leave government. So the anti-establishment party has become the senior partner in the coalition, and that's it's the one calling the shots at the moment. 
yeah, it's really interesting about the um, return of grand coalitions. I remember actually on one of your podcasts um, a few months ago, Chris Bickerton talking about the possible end of the era of grand coalitions. And that certainly, if you look at German politics, doesn't seem to be what's happening. Um, there have been three grand coalitions in the last four electoral periods. And it, I think the most likely outcome after the election next autumn is another grand coalition. So that's kind of interesting. But I suppose the Social Democrats... What's happened with the Social Democrats, as you say, Helen, is really interesting too, because having elected a left-wing leadership duo who defeated Schultz you know, quite badly last year, they have now nominated him as the candidate for Chancellor, which is quite interesting. And my worry about that is that it ends up being a little bit like Per Steinbrück, who was the candidate in 2013, who'd also been the German finance minister in a grand coalition before that, very much associated with the grand coalition, did quite badly in that election in 2013. My hope is that it ends up being a little bit like 1998, where Gerhard Schröder and Oskar Lafontaine ran together Lafontaine being a much more left-wing figure than Schroeder, who was much more of a centrist, but was sort of popular in the way that Schultz seems to be now. So there could be kind of an interesting way in which, I mean, Schultz has also said that he wants to lead not a grand coalition, but a progressive coalition, which in this case means a red-red-green coalition. So there could be an interesting scenario, as I think it's fairly unlikely at the moment, but there could be a scenario where Schultz, you know, as a kind of a centrist, the third most popular politician in Germany, helps the Social Democrats get elected, but then they actually form a government that is somewhat to the left of what you might expect from Olaf Scholz. And I think it's worth also just remembering, and this connects with the recovery fund, that although you think of Schultz as being a centrist kind of figure, you know, finance minister in the Grand Coalition and so on, but there has been this interesting shift in the last year, which is part of what's produced the recovery fund, where under Schultz's leadership, there has been a bit of a culture change in the German finance ministry. It has moved to the left. And so Schultz isn't quite actually the sort of centrist economic policy figure that he seemed to be when he first became finance minister. And in one of his first utterances said, a German finance minister is a German finance minister. In other words, it's kind of irrelevant that I'm a social democrat. You know, I'm going to continue the Schäuble line. Actually, he hasn't quite done that. And that's partly what produced the recovery fund. As ringing catchphrases go, it's not quite with nothing to fear but fear itself, is it? A German finance minister is a German finance minister. It works in Germany. One of the great sayings in political history. Okay, so I want to ask a, a last big question for all of you, which just picks up precisely on what you just said there, Hans, because if you look at the wider picture here, you could say there are two things going on. And I'm just thinking about the broader context of European politics, and this applies outside Europe too. The COVID crisis has... Probably that's not true in America. But the COVID crisis has in some ways had a stabilizing effect and a certain kind of both centrism and competence has come to the fore and is being valued by democratic publics and is getting public support. And some of the fracturing that we saw, the possibilities of parties fracturing and also public opinion fracturing seems to be on hold. And yet what these governments have been doing, and it touches on just what you said about the German finance ministry, Huge steps have been taken and commitments undertaken, which will have massive long-term consequences. Government spending, bailouts, government intervention, government control in various areas of economic and indeed social life. Now, this has been both a stabilizing crisis and a transformative crisis, potentially. 
And these two things in the European context could be at odds with each other. So the stabilizing works for now. But if we think more longer term, and Hans, you wrote about this recently in a paper for Chatham House. If you think about the longer term implications, there is going to be a lot more state intervention in economic life. And that will have also consequences for how it's going to be paid for and by whom. And if you think about that over the medium to long term, it's not at all clear to me that Europe does have the institutions or indeed the consensus to cope with that. So that's my question. Are these two things actually fundamentally at odds? And we shouldn't fall for the the stabilisation and centralisation. We should think about the longer term. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree that there is this danger further down the line that actually the kind of shift in political economy that governments now want to make in Europe, as you suggested, towards you know more state intervention, you know, lots of discussion around how big government is back and so on. So in other words, a sort of shift in the relationship between the state and the market compared to what there's been for the last 30, 40 years, you know, for want of a better term, the sort of neoliberal period. There is, I think, a danger that actually the EU constrains European countries from doing that, particularly in terms of the fiscal rules, which Helen already mentioned and are suspended. But there doesn't seem to me there's much of a discussion about, you know, abolishing them yet. And also in terms of industrial policy, which constrains state intervention in the economy in a different way. And so I think that could become a problem further down the line. If EU member states were all sort of unanimous about making this shift, then you could imagine a complete reinvention of the EU, a real kind of next generation EU, as it were, which is the name that has been given to the recovery fund. But, you know, the reality is that there won't be unanimity about this. There'll be all of the divides that we've all seen for the last 10 years between North and South and East and West and so on. And so it's quite difficult to see how the EU sort of unanimously agrees to reinvent itself in that way for the sort of post-coronavirus world. And so then I think the danger is that you're sort of trapped in a kind of unstable equilibrium or a sort of suboptimal equilibrium where you can't get agreements to reform the EU. And so you're stuck with this kind of essentially neoliberal EU that you have now. And that that causes, you know, more conflict, not just between member states, which is what Helen was talking about earlier on, and I think is absolutely right in terms of the struggles that there are going to be over how you spend the money and conditionality and so on with the recovery fund, but also in terms of conflict between elites and citizens, essentially. I mean, I think that what's interesting is that there seems to me a clear parallel between what happened after the 2008 crash and what looks like it might end up happening here is just that we switch from a a Eurozone crisis to a single market crisis that's coming after this pandemic. So if you go back to the beginning of the Eurozone crisis, the fundamental problem was the treaties, and in particular, the importance of the treaties in Germany, were an impediment to improvised policymaking in response to the difficulties that the southern European states, led by Greece, had in borrowing. And it took quite a long time to work that out till we get to the point where we get to Draghi doing something essentially outside the treaties that gets sort of retrospectively legitimated, albeit in a quite complicated way. And that phase of the crisis, the Eurozone crisis came to an end. Now, what we've seen already in the this crisis is that the rules about state aid have been effectively suspended, but they require the Commission's permission in order for individual states then to act to support particular sectors or particular firms. And in the ways in which 
the nature of Germany's position, including its superior fiscal position to most other EU states, means that the German government has been able to take much better advantage of that so far than others have. So you're going to have contested decision-making about state aid in the context of a legal framework around the single market. And as we know, it's incredibly difficult now to think about changing EU treaties. This has got, as I say, I think a parallel with what happened back from 2009. And at the same time, it's then happening in a context, a bigger geopolitical context in terms of the breakdown of the US-China relationship or the accelerated breakdown of the US-China relationship and the consequences for that for individual European countries, where there's going to be a desire, it's already been expressed particularly by Macron, to have stronger national manufacturing bases. And how that gets worked out in the context of the single market is also going to be incredibly politically contested. But because the single market is governed by treaty, we're going to see quite a lot, I think, of discretionary decision making in which it's going to look like the most powerful have advantages that the weaker member states don't have. Lucia? Yeah, no, I think I think I agree with what Helen and Hans said. But thinking about the Italian context, I think that Italy is trying to go even further, probably, than other states in terms of, you know, what the government has done is not just state intervention and state aid, but it has started a program of nationalization of some key industries. So they basically nationalized Alitalia, the airline companies. They decided just a few weeks ago, they bought 30% of the shares of the Atlantia, which is the company that manages the highway system in Italy, which is something that was completely unacceptable two years ago when the highway bridge over Genova collapsed and became possible because of the COVID crisis a few weeks ago. And this has created a lot of turmoil in the country from some parts of the liberal elite that used to vote for the Democratic Party, but now the Democratic Party is being pushed by the Five Star Party in government as part of the government coalition to do a lot of state intervention and especially these sort of measures of almost nationalization. And these measures have a lot of support from the population and public opinion is generally favorable to these measures. And of course, given the debt to GDP ratio of the Italian state, this is going to create a lot of conflict between Italy and the European Union. So I think Italy will be even more at odds with the EU because of this government's move towards state intervention. It's interesting you mentioned Alitalia because the German government had taken a stake in Lufthansa and that had already caused a big fight with the European Commission. But that was just about taking a a limited, I think, 20% stake in the company. So if the Italian government is essentially nationalising Alitalia, that'll be interesting to see how the Commission reacts to that. Yeah. One last thing to pick up on something you said, Hans, there. So in this conversation we've had, we have focused on something that we used to talk about a lot, which is North-South. But you mentioned there's also the East-West divide. There was a lot of talk earlier this year about Hungary and whether Hungary and the way that the Hungarian state is currently being governed is consistent with some fundamental principles of EU governance, including ideas of democracy and the rule of law. And some Western European politicians, including at some points Merkel, have seemed quite keen to press that issue, but not so much now. Has it really faded away? I mean, in this new centralization and stabilization moment, has the appetite to take on that challenge, the Orban challenge, faded? I don't really perceive a shift in the way that you're suggesting. My sense is that Merkel has always been very reluctant to take any kind of serious action against Orban. 
the thing that I find extraordinary about this discussion is that EPP, the European People's Party, hasn't even been able to kick out Fidesz, Orban's party, you know, let alone take any further action against Hungary itself. I mean, that's a very simple step that Merkel could have taken, but he hasn't done it for political reasons. You know, this partly has to do with the CSU in Bavaria, which has a very close relationship with Orban. This in turn has a lot to do, I think, with the economic relations between Germany and Hungary, Bavaria and Hungary in particular. Audi, for example, is the single biggest investor in in Hungary. There's a very close relationship there. So it seems to me that Merkel has been very reluctant all along to take action to take this threat seriously, even as she is perceived as being the sort of figurehead of kind of liberalism in Europe. It doesn't seem to me that she's been very serious about it all along. And and I think, you know, now you have a situation where with the events in Belarus, I think it's also constraining the ability of the EU to respond to authoritarianism, you know, outside of the EU, because internally it's unable even to deal with authoritarians within its own midst. Helen, do you want to have a last word on that? I think that the, I mean, I tend to agree with what Hans has said about the past, but I think that what's happened in this crisis in terms of the EU recovery fund has actually just made it a lot more difficult structurally because Merkel decided, and this was Merkel and not Macron, that the EU recovery fund was going to be at the EU level and not at the Eurozone level. So the Eurozone issues were going to be dealt with within the EU budgetary framework. And that essentially meant that the Hungarian government and the Polish government, and indeed any other government who's not in the in the Euro, was going to get a potential veto over support for Italy. And that makes actually having any kind of institutional challenge to Hungary, leaving aside the question of how much intention Merkel ever had of pursuing such a confrontation, extraordinarily difficult. And I guess one of the casualties of the negotiations about the EU budget was precisely the rule of law conditionality that would have been used against Hungary. I personally think that's probably quite a good thing because I think that kind of conditionality in the sort of medium term would be really toxic for the EU. But that certainly was a consequence of the way the negotiations went was that the tough approach that some people had been hoping for didn't become a reality. As always, if you want to find links to some of the things that we refer to there, including Hans's excellent Chatham House article about the future of Europe, but also some pieces by Adam Tooze, one of our regular contributors on these themes, they are in our show notes. You can also find them on Twitter at tppodcast underscore. Next week, for the last time this summer, we're revisiting a classic episode, if I can call them that, from our archive with the French economist Thomas Piketty, recorded the week that Emmanuel Macron became president of France. We're going to listen back to what Piketty hoped and feared from a Macron presidency, and then Helen and I are going to try and decide which of those hopes and which of those fears came to pass. Do join us for that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. That's really interesting, yeah. (laughs) 